All right, so I set you up, okay? Last week, we heard about the manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Paul introduces that subject to us. Live in a manner, he says, worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the worthiness of that life that Paul's talking about is not a life that lives so as to earn God's promises, right? To pay for them. We can't do that. Rather, the worthiness is to live in such a way as fits with the gospel, right? We see the value of the gospel as it's reflected in the life of a believer by the way in which they're choosing to live and what they're seeking and what they value. And this morning, we're going to be looking, he was talking firstly about that one half of the scale. Now we're going to be looking at what all of that is measured against the other side. We're going to see this week the weighty glory of Jesus Christ. This worthy life which Paul's describing is our life of discipleship. It's what it is that we are being called to. It's a life that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this Christian discipleship, this way, this manner of life, this citizenship um, that we're to live by, we're going to be looking at firstly the privileges of discipleship, the fullness of discipleship, the glory of discipleship, and lastly, the disciples' glory. What is it that the disciple glories in? And Larry is going to come back up and read this morning's passage. Before he does that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for your promise uh, to be with us. Um, that you offer that to us before we even know that we need to ask it. Uh, Lord, we, we cry out, cast a look on us. But really what we need is to see you seeing us uh, like a child who calls out to a parent. Look, look, watch me. Lord, I thank you that you um, have set your attention on us, your love on us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit now uh, to be at work in us, to help us to see the glory of the gospel. Um, and in that, that it would well up in gratitude and in praise and in obedience in joy and in love, and Lord, we will give you all the credit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. So firstly, let's look at the privilege of Christian discipleship. Paul, he begins this section with, so if. The question that he's asking by so if is actually rhetorical. The privileges and benefits which he describes are ours through Jesus. And Paul mentions five benefits here. He mentions encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy. Okay, so firstly, he promises us, uh, we, we, we have, uh, we receive encouragement. The word here is not the, the great-hearted word of um, courage, you know, having great courage, but it is the, the calling alongside encouragement. It is the, it's the same word that we get paraclete from, which describes the work of the Holy Spirit. And our call to obedience and faithfulness is one that we share together. Now think about this. We, we just confessed in the Nicene Creed that we believe of, in all things visible and invisible, Right? That means that there's a world that we cannot see that we participate in. The myriad of angels and of saints who have preceded us, they view us. They view the race that we are running. Paul says in, in, in Ephesians that in the church, there is a stage, a drama that is being played out in which the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed in the heavenly places, right? Through the church, um, our race that we're running is being observed. And it's being observed not by disinterested onlookers who are scattered along a, a race course somewhere, maybe heckling and mocking you, right? Those, in some measure, right, we, we, those people, right, those powers, um, they are, they are viewing the manifold wisdom of God that's at work in us and through us. Um, there's such a, a great confidence that is communicated um, or that is behind this, this calling out or calling alongside. We do this for one another um, when we say to one another, I believe in you. You can do it. Now, what is it that we mean when we say, I believe in you? I believe that you exist? Like, that's pretty silly. Why is when someone says to you, I believe in you, why is that encouraging? Well, one reason I think it's encouraging is because we borrow one another's faith. There, there are times in which we doubt ourselves. We don't think we can do it. We don't have enough faith to believe that what we put into it is going to measure out in any sort of way that is going to lead to blessing or fruitfulness. 
the, the source of our believing in one another, of our um, trusting one another, is Christ, Paul says. Jesus Christ has already secured for us victory. Jesus is present in us. Jesus is with us. Right? Personally and collectively, we are a holy land wherein the Most High dwells. We are a temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. We, together, our lives are a garden. And the Lord has redeemed us, has redeemed you, and is making you new. Be encouraged. He will not fail in his work in you, even if you fail in your attempts. So, encouragement. Secondly, we enjoy the fruit of comfort. Right? A child, when a child is in pain or is afraid, they are soothed with comforting words. And oftentimes what we'll say um, to our child is, it's all right. That doesn't mean that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not painful. Um, in, in these moments of grief and pain, we're not reasoning with them an explanation as to why it is that they should be okay and, not, and stop crying. We, we may get to that point, but we don't say that to them at first. First, what it is that they need, what it is that they desire, what it is that you desire in the midst of pain and sorrow is one who recognizes the significance of what you're going through and is present with you in it. The it's all right is followed with, I'm here. You can't take it away. I I don't know a parent who would not want to take away from their child the suffering that they are enduring. They would all do it if they could. But in most cases, you can't. All you can do is to be present. And in that present presence, right, the parent says to the child, you're not alone. I am with you. This is, this is love. This is the comfort that is offered to us, that we enjoy. Right, the, the third fruit that he talks about that the children of God enjoy is participation. And this word participation, um, it speaks to the presence, right, the comfort of love, But the participation is the word koinonia, which we sometimes see translated as fellowship. We're not alone. Salvation isn't something that's merely transactional. It's something that I received because I prayed the sinner's prayer, and in exchange, I got salvation. We've been invited into a life with God and with his people. We participate in the mission of God even as we share with one another the love of God. We have fellowship. We participate. Um, We're comforted. We're encouraged. I I read here just recently that they have named the furthest star that they have ever uh, been able to identify here recently. And happily, they used a Lord of the Rings reference to name it. And the star is named Arendelle. It is 28 billion light years away. 28 billion light years away. How fast does light travel? 186,000 miles per second. 
28 billion light years away. You know, that's a, that is, that's a distance where I try and kind of imagine. I can't even imagine how many zeros that is. As to how far away. It's something that I can't even conceive of. Yet, here's the truth. If you were to travel to Arendelle, you would be no further from the participation and fellowship and comfort and encouragement of God than you are right here with God's people. Right? That is ours. That encouragement is ours in Christ Jesus. And through the, the Holy Spirit right now sitting, with his, sitting in the midst of his people, we are enjoying the, that fellowship, that participation. Uh, the, the Bible has another way to say it. The Bible says that you could even pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And even there, what do we know? Thou art with me. He's, he is near. We participate. And as a consequence, right, we have both affection and sympathy. These, these fruits that we enjoy because of the love of God and the Holy Spirit, they're, they're the fruits that Paul demonstrates over and over again through his pastoral concern for his people by which he's writing this letter. His great heart affection, it goes back to the days in which the Philippian church was first planted. Right? In the days in which there weren't even enough believers present to gather together a synagogue, and he had to go outside of town to where the women were washing clothes in the Cronides River to preach for the first time. Right? This is the town where the Philippian jailer and his family were converted. It's the church here. It's the church that preceded um, and outdid all of the other churches in giving to the needs of the Judean churches who were suffering under a famine. And this is the same church that continues to support Paul through his ministry and up to this point has sent help physically in sending people and material, materially in sending money that he needs. He has great affection for them as they do for him. And it's because of his sympathy for them that he's written this letter because they have heard that the one that they sent with their gift, Epaphroditus, has fallen ill. Our affection and sympathy for one another is not a burden. It's a privilege to love and to share and to rejoice in one another's successes, right? To, to be present and to walk with one another in their suffering and their afflictions. These grace gift sources are the fruits of the Philippians' rights of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven and children of God, and they are ours as well. Paul says that it's their encouragement of him, it's their offering comfort to him, their sharing in his suffering with him, their affection for him and his sympathy with him. He says that in those things, they can actually fill full his joy, right? That is up to the top and overflowing. And how is it that they might be able to do that? Through their living out of the fullness of discipleship. Paul says they can fill, fill full, fulfill, fill full his joy. They can do so by having the same view, the same love 
in one accord and of one mind. And, and Paul here uses a, a word that he's used already. He uses it twice here in this verse. Um, and it's a pretty significant word in, the, in his letter. He's, he speaks in the salutation of his prayers of joy on behalf of the Philippians and his confidence, that is his belief in them and in Jesus who is at work through them. Paul says that it's right for him to feel this way about them. You see, Paul here, is, he's, he's pastorally demonstrating what it is that he's calling them to do. He's not doing this for his sake, though he begins by saying he wants them to feel the same way. He knows that they do. You know, you, you know, you know if somebody enjoys your company. You know if someone loves you. And, and what he shares with the Philippians in feeling and in love and in unity, he desires that the Philippians have that among themselves. And this concern actually is another reason why Paul is writing to them. His desire is that what they enjoy with him, that they enjoy with one another. Paul wants them to have the same worldview, the same love, the same unity in mind. And, and mind might be a hard word for us to get our head around. That's that word that he uses several times in, in this section and in, in throughout the letter. Paul wants them to have one mind. He wants them to have their attention directed at the same things. He wants them to be agreeing to the same thoughts. Now, he's not talking about every thought that they agree on every single thing, but their unity is what he's talking about. This essential charity um, is what he's talking about. Paul doesn't spell out for them the, the theological concepts of their koinonia together or their worldview, but what he does is he describes the life of a true disciple, a discipleship that's worth emulating a discipleship which flows from a right understanding of the essentials of their faith. And this is where he points us to Jesus. It's the glory of discipleship. It's found in the glory of Jesus Christ. Right? It's our living out in a manner worthy of him. That's what Paul has his eye on, on the other end of the scale. That's what's fitting, is the manner of life, our manner of life being reflected in his manner of life. Right? Rather than looking out for yourself, Paul's saying, looking out for your own honor, looking out for your own glory, rather than prizing the esteem of others, glorious discipleship is not born from an over-concern for self, and one's own reputation. A life full of the glory of Jesus Christ is a life that many people, I think, would not recognize as glorious. That's the, that's the stumbling block because it's foreign to the way the world views things. And secondly, it draws no attention to itself. Now you can see these sorts of glorious gospel-powered lies, but it requires something of you. It requires metaphorically, maybe really, of you standing on your head and looking around for 
a bit because the world ignores such people. But the Lord Jesus and the cloud of witnesses, they rejoice. They delight to look into this. The manifold wisdom of God is being displayed. You know, we don't know, I was so blessed by the series on on Ruth, the book of Ruth. We We don't know And we don't live in the sort of world that Naomi and Ruth lived in. We don't live in a world in which there isn't a king and that it was all up to individuals to get the help they needed and the justice they needed. We live in a world where there is a king and he has already achieved for us a victory. The problem is it's just that that world hasn't been fully realized yet. Um, That the world itself is actively suppressing the knowledge of it. Now, in a few verses, Paul's going to say they will recognize it. That day is coming. But we believe we've not been left to ourselves. Right, and, and, and that being true, we can be on the lookout for others. Their concerns can be our concerns, right? We consider, that is, with thoughtfulness, we consider what others are going through and dealing with, right? And this, he, he describes this worldview of those who are living as worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They have this mind among Yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is where the glory of discipleship finds its source, its inspiration and example in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Oftentimes, that section is called the Carmen Christi. It seems that maybe, possibly, Paul is actually quoting a hymn of the church that they would have known that day. And it reads this way, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This, this is the measure of the weightiness of our discipleship, of a It's its glorious pinnacle, though it sounds like a stepping down. The passage speaks of form and emptying in such a way that we could confuse things about the person of Jesus and his human and divine natures, and that's not what Paul's talking about here. The information that we can glean here um, is saying about, it is talking more about the scope and the span and the breadth of his love. In Mark's gospel, we have a picture of Jesus who is the greatest lover of obstinate sinners that you'd ever see. Now, if you think about Mark's gospel, think about, um, think about the pedigree, the people who are associated with Mark's gospel. Many believe that Mark's testimony was taken from the testimony of Peter, that Mark was with Peter and Paul in the end, and that Mark was writing down Peter's words, and that's what, uh, when Peter talks about delivering to the saints, you know, some 
help that they can have with them, this testimony of the gospel. He talks about this in 2 Peter, that actually what he's talking about is the gospel of Mark, that he's writing the gospel of Mark, and Mark is actually writing down Peter's words. Now Mark and Peter, I mean, Peter who was a crucifixion avoiding, Jesus denying, miserable sinner, Mark himself is likely one whom he refers to himself in the story of Jesus' arrest, that one of the disciples who was with him kind of got himself out of his cloak and ran home naked. It's probably Mark just saying, yep, that was me. Mark also, who cut and run when things got too hard as he traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. And then for that matter, what about Paul? A disciple hunting Christ-persecuting killer. What do those awful reputations have to say about Jesus? They come to know whom Mark reminds us through Jesus' word that the Son of Man, the exalted one who is talked about in Daniel 9, the cloud rider who appears before the Ancient of Days and upon whom the Ancient of Days confers every kingdom, the champion and king of heaven, that this one came, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This, that, that's the glory of those who know themselves to be miserable sinners. It's the expansive breadth and width and height and depth of the love of Jesus. It fills Paul's imagination with wonder. And if we'll let us, we will never get our fill of it either because we'll never fully comprehend it. We, we can only marvel at it like trying to imagine an object that is 28 billion light years away and all the, way, all the while knowing that that distance, the distance which Jesus Christ covered in order to descend and be with us was infinitely greater. Jesus' condescension, his stooping low, his taking on our form demonstrates the distances to which he would go to show us that love and to rescue and save us. How much would he pay? How far would he go in that love? Paul tells us that he would go in obedience unto death. And not a noble, kind of courageous, last stand, sword in the air kind of a death, but a death on a cross. And you'll remember that the Philippians to whom Paul was writing, that that was a Roman colony. They were citizens of the empire. And a Roman citizen could not be, uh, could not be crucified, even if they were guilty of a capital crime. Because crucifixion was deemed to be below the worth of a Roman citizen. Yet Jesus himself humbled himself and went all the way to death, even death on a cross. This is our glory. It's Paul's glory. 
In, in the first letter that Paul wrote, he, he writes to the Galatians to help them understand. They're, they're, they themselves are tempted into thinking that there are levels, um, uh, ways to rise up in superiority over other Christians. And Paul says that has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And he says, that I could boast in things. He's going to say that here a little bit later in, Phil, in Philippians about the things that he could boast in. But in Galatians 6, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. From the heights to the depths of the deep and back to the highest heights, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has been raised up. And at his cross, we see the depths to which he would descend, and it actually becomes the heights by which our love is measured. Our glory in this begins today and continues to eternity. It is a love in which we glory and in which unites us. It's the example that we seek to emulate and a desire to live worthy of it, not to earn it, right? But to exemplify it. When it's time, we will, the question is, will we be ready to kneel? Right? If you're not ready to kneel, that will be a judgment. If you're ready, it will, because, it will be because you have spent a lifetime practicing. Right? This meal here, the elements of the Lord's Supper, you have the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, to the world, its glory is veiled, uh, much like the, the claws that are set over the bread and to the, the lid that covers the cups. But Isaiah foresaw it. He saw it. And, he's, and he talks about, says the Lord's words, there's an invitation of the thirsty to come to the water and drink. And he says for those who are thirsty, right, come, and they will delight in the richest affair. Now for the world, this looks like the leftover scraps of a pantry at the end of a paycheck cycle. It's like all we got left. But for the disciple of Jesus, who has beheld his glory, it speaks of the fulfillment of all of the promises in scriptures, right? The lamb that was sacrificed so that God's people might be rescued out of darkness and death and brought into the kingdom of the son of his love, right? The lamb whose blood shields his people from, from judgment, the cup of salvation that we drink in and participate in, the promise that was made to Jeremiah, the promise of the new covenant, the, the cup of the wine of his gladness and the bread of his life is given for us to nourish and sustain us as we run this race, pass through this wilderness. This meal is Jesus reminding you that he offers himself to you and all that he has again today, just as he did when you first apprehended your hunger and your need and his love for you. His mercies for you are new today.
and they are new every morning. 